We now turn to this morning's scripture lesson for the sermon as we continue studying 1 Corinthians. We did read these verses last time. We're going to, to break down the passage that we studied before. We considered the issue of factions in the Lord's Supper last time, and today we're going to concentrate on what Paul says particularly about the Lord's Supper itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll read now today verses 23 through 26. And this is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write. And so we have the very word of the living God, so let's attend with reverence to its reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let's briefly pray. Lord, we do thank you again for your written word. We thank you that you have not left us to flounder around or figure these things out for ourselves, but that you have clearly given us the testimony of who you are and what you expect of us. We ask that you would therefore enlighten us now, that as your word is exposited, it would be faithfully exposited, that it would be preached well, and that each one of us would take to heart the things which we learn from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we considered the problem of how factions, of how disunity in the church can damage the witness of the Lord's Supper. And today we're going to handle the matter of the Lord's Supper itself. I'm not going to be able to say everything that could be said, or hit the microphone either. Um, I'm not going to be able to say everything that could be said that can be... uh, that could be pulled out of Scripture about the sacrament. Um, Rather, I'm going to concentrate on what Paul has to say in particular in this passage uh, and what he teaches us here in verses 23 through 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, bringing in some other Scriptures to help flesh that out. Uh, Paul teaches that the main point of the Lord's Supper is to point to the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Some related lessons that we'll find in this passage are, number one, uh, Paul received this sacrament, which he imparted to the Corinthians directly from Christ. This is what actually uh, we doctrinally would say distinguishes a sacrament from other things. It's one of the distinguishing marks. Uh, One thing that we know about a sacrament is that it has to come directly from God, and that it is for his church. And so... Here we see, indeed, it was instituted directly by Christ, and so, of course, as we'll see, that means that that we don't have the right to mess with it, right? We We have to handle it the way Christ has given it to us. Secondly, number two, we'll see that 
uh, Jesus instituted this sacrament on the night in which he was betrayed, and that has particular implications for us, because we know what night that was. In particular, it was Passover. Number three, we see that the broken bread uh, points to Christ's suffering. Uh, Yes, the bread and the wine together, or the broken bread, does point to his death as well. Uh, But if we divide them out, if there's any distinction, the broken bread in particular causes us to think of Christ's suffering, of the breaking of his body, for the sins of his people. And the fourth, the cup points particularly to his death, to shed blood. Number five, we'll see the Lord's Supper is a solemn memorial, so it has a past tense sort of reference. And then also we'll see it has a present aspect. That's the sixth thing we'll see. And then lastly, we'll see that it also has a future aspect. And all these things can be found just in these short verses that Paul wrote here in the midst of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. You'll notice that this passage begins with the word for, not just the uh, preposition, but the conjunction here. So when for is used as a conjunction, uh, as it is in verse 23, that tells us that the things that Paul is about to say uh, uh, are... uh, are foundational to what he's already said. The things that Paul has just said are true because of what he's about to say, or that what he's about to say will further explain what he has already said. The Corinthians were abusing the sacrament. That's one of the things he's told us. that uh, They were abusing it to such an extent that, as he says in verse 20, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And Paul knows that Uh, What they're doing is not, in some way, properly the Lord's Supper because of the truth of what the Lord's Supper actually is. And you'll notice also that, aside from a few times we see for as a preposition in this passage, that we see it used as a conjunction in another place. It it, uh, appears in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So, so the grammar actually draws our attention there to verse 26. That's uh, It's becoming further focused. This is, these things were true because of what I have to say about the Lord's Supper. What I have to say about the Lord's Supper is true because as long as you do this, you proclaim Christ's death till he comes. That's the main point of the passage then. Since Paul is explaining the Lord's Supper, we see it as the main point of the Lord's Supper, to point to Christ's atoning death. By observing the Lord's Supper, the church proclaims Christ's death till he returns, till he comes. Uh, the word for proclaim there, katangelita, uh, literally means something like put forth a message. So we put forth a message about Christ every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus ordained this means of engaging the senses to put forth the message of his atoning death. He broke bread as a sign that his body would be broken for his people. Jesus was arrested, and during his trial before the Sanhedrin, he was beaten, he was mocked. He was handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, where he was beaten, he was scourged, that is whipped, with a multi-headed whip, and they uh, often, as we understand, either had little bits of pottery 
woven in to the whip or little uh, weights on the end, kind of sort of shaped like dumbbells. And these would, would tear into the flesh as someone was whipped. Pontius Pilate at first seemed to think that maybe that would be enough to satisfy the crowd, and it wasn't. And so he was crucified. To use just one gospel account, we read in Matthew 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear the cross, to bear his cross, excuse me. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's from Psalm 22. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed to offer it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. He suffered not just physically, as we read in that passage, he suffered forsakenness. Indeed, the darkness on the land for three hours is a sign of the wrath of God. He died for the sins of his people. As Matthew writes, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. There's a lot more there than we will take the time to go into, but notice that Jesus, contrary to what normally happens to someone when crucified, could cry out with a loud voice. That shows his sovereignty over the situation. He yielded up his spirit. As he told his disciples, he would lay down his life. No one took it from him. But prior to all that, he gave this sacrament as a sign and seal of that atoning death. 
by the breaking of bread and eating it, we show that Christ's body was broken for his people. By drinking of the cup, we declare that Christ's blood was shed, that is, that he died for his people. These signs point to the historical fact of Christ's suffering and death, of of his atonement for us. They point to the spiritual reality that his suffering and death paid the penalty for his people's sins. As he said when instituting the sacrament, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so by partaking of the sacrament, Christ's people are marked off as his people. It's a seal upon them, which says, these belong to Jesus. And the benefit of his atoning death applies to them. Now, it's not magical. It doesn't make that happen to somebody who's not a believer if they happen to take the elements that are being used for the sacrament. But the Lord's Supper does point to the atoning death of Jesus Christ, and it's efficacious for all who take it in faith. So that's not all we get from this passage. So the basic thing that we get from this passage is that it points to his atoning death. There are at least seven lessons related to that point, though, uh, which we can glean just from these few verses that Paul writes right here. Number one, we see that Paul received this sacrament, which he imparted to the Corinthian brethren, directly from Jesus Christ. Jesus instituted the sacrament, and he taught it to Paul. The first part of verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. We probably all know the account of Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road when he encountered the risen Lord, who said, Why do you persecute me? Of course, he was persecuting Christ's people, but notice the identification of Christ with his own people. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, well, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. After that, he preached the gospel in Damascus, and he escaped a plot to murder him by being lowered from the city wall in a basket. After that, he eventually made his way to Jerusalem. If we read Luke's account in Acts, it almost almost looks like it happens just a few days later. But as he tells us in Galatians 1, 17 and 18, he did not uh, convert, preach in Damascus, and then go straight to Jerusalem. Rather, he says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia. I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So during those three years, he was taught by Christ. The Lord spoke directly to him and trained him as he did the other apostles over that course of three years to be his apostle. And that included training in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, presumably baptism as well. But here he particularly says he received this directly from the Lord. Paul received this sacrament directly from Jesus. So what he imparted to them was not his best guess at what Jesus wanted him to do. It was what Jesus had directly told him. Here's how you do this. It was what Jesus commanded. 
It was the Lord's Supper as Christ commanded it to be done. The Corinthians ought not to meddle with that or alter it in any way. The sacrament came from Jesus himself. And so when, of course, by their attitude they were undermining the meaning of the sacrament, we find that they were therefore making a mockery of this thing that Jesus had directly given. The sacrament came from Jesus himself. A second point we see related to the fact that this proclaims Christ's death till he comes is that Jesus instituted the sacrament actually on the night in which he was betrayed, Paul tells us. That's the latter part of verse 23. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. That was, as we read in the Gospels, the night of Passover. And his betrayal, of course, was something predicted in Scripture, and it would be something that was necessary, that it might take place that he would die for the sins of his people. But we know this took place particularly on the night of Passover. So uh, he linked this sacrament to the symbolism of the Passover. Jesus was about to fulfill all of that symbolism, and so he would say, no longer are you doing this in remembrance of rescue from Egypt, you're now doing it in remembrance of me. His blood would satisfy the justice and the wrath of the Lord so that God's wrath would pass over all who were covered in Jesus' blood, much as God's wrath passed over the Israelites when they entered a house whose door was covered in the blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus instituted this new sacrament to be done not in remembrance of that deliverance from Egypt, but in remembrance of him, he said. He was therefore betrayed into the hands of Gentiles as was foreordained, betrayed by one of his closest friends, as Psalm 41 verse 9 predicted, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's a poetic way of saying betrayed me. So this happened on the same night in which Christ was betrayed. That has implications. Number three, another related point we see is that the broken bread points to the suffering of Christ. It points to his broken body, so it points to his death along with the, the shed blood. But it particularly points also to his suffering on behalf of his people. Starting in verse 23, reading through 24. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. So if there's any distinction between what the bread and the wine point to, the bread and the cup, if there's any specific distinction between them, is that the bread points more to the suffering of Christ, that his body was broken We wouldn't want to make that too fine of a distinction because together the whole point is to point to his death. But his suffering that leads to his death was part of that humiliation and part of what he went through on behalf of his people. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was pierced by a crown of thorns, uh, by nails in his hands and feet, even after his death by a Roman spear. He suffered the great physical pain of crucifixion as well as the humiliation and ridicule that went with such an accursed means of execution. And worst of all, 
The cup that he really wanted to pass from him when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane was that he suffered separation from the blessings and mercy of God. He knew only the wrath of God. And thus he would cry out the first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The broken bread especially points to these things, to what Christ suffered for his people, as well as to his death. But particularly then, our fourth point here, the cup points to his shed blood, and that means especially to his death. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As a side note, I might point out that uh, the beginning of verse 25 shows us that the practice, in my opinion, of intinction is actually inappropriate. I loved the fact when I was talking to some ministers, when I was first working on coming into the RPCNA, I was talking with a group of pastors, and I, I said something about the practice of intinction that was used in some churches, and they said, what's that? So I thought, well, wow, this church doesn't even, it's not even on the radar. <clears throat> uh, intinction is the, the practice of sort of shortcutting the sacrament, if you will. You take the, the bread, and you dip it in the cup, and then you eat the soppy bread. You take the two elements together. It always reminded me of Judas, because uh, when John in the Gospel created John asks Jesus to identify which one's going to betray him, he says, it's the one I'll feed the sop to. And he sops up some, probably some juices from the lamb uh, in some bread and feeds it to Judas. Uh, but as we noted earlier, we have to make sure that we don't meddle with the way in which Christ set forth this sacrament to be observed. We have to do it the way he instituted, and we see we see that he took the cup after they had eaten, after supper, after they'd eaten the bread. So the two are, are separate actions within the same ceremony. And the cup, in particular, uh, points to Christ's shed blood. He said, "This is my blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of sins, shed for many." Throughout Scripture, the shedding of blood is an expression meaning death. Think of Genesis 9-6, which institutes capital punishment after the flood, when the Lord says to Moses, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That's not talking about, you know, if you accidentally cut your friend's arm with because you, your knife slipped or something like that, therefore he has to cut your arm. No, it's talking about death. If you murder someone, you get the death penalty. That's what... The Lord is telling Noah. It's not as if Jesus might have cut his foot on a sharp stone while he was in the wilderness or pricked his thumb when he was working on some carpentry project with Joseph and that that atoned for sin. No, as Paul says in Romans 6, death is the wages of sin. So if your sins are to be paid for by a substitute, that means the substitute has to die. And so the cup points to the fact that Jesus died for his people's sins, that he shed his blood. As we'll see this evening, he did that willingly, offering himself as a sacrifice for his people. Number five, the sacrament is a solemn memorial. 
The last part of verse 24, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says in the end of verse 25, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we're remembering something, we're looking back at something that has occurred. The sacrament commemorates what Christ did for his people. So we're proclaiming his death in the past until he comes every time we celebrate this sacrament. When he established the new covenant in his blood, we're looking back to that establishment and we're celebrating the fact that we're in that covenant. And so that brings us to our sixth point. This also has a present aspect. Verse 26, for as often, that is whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, present tense, the Lord's death till he comes. Right now, any time you participate in the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming the Lord's atoning death that happened in the past, but you're proclaiming it here and now. You're proclaiming that the new covenant is now in effect. That's so comforting. It's a sensory reminder. It's something that you can see Something that you can feel, something you can smell, something you can taste. Ordinarily, the sense engaged is appropriately hearing. Paul tells us in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But Christ has given us sacraments as things that engage the other senses as well. So when you participate in the Lord's Supper, you can see it, you can feel it, you can smell it, you can taste it. And it's a reminder of what Jesus has done and that its effects and benefits are at work even now. So it has this present aspect. It spiritually feeds the one who partakes in faith. In John 6, Jesus speaks of the same spiritual reality to which the sacrament points. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Lord's Supper has a real spiritual effect of sealing Christ's people both by and to him. 1 Corinthians 10.16 speaks of our union with Christ in terms of the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? As the Westminster Confession states in its chapter 29, paragraph 7, worthy receivers outwardly partaking And the visible elements in this sacrament do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally or corporally, so you're not literally eating the flesh of Jesus, uh, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are the out, are to the outward senses. So, as surely, the Heidelberg Catechism says this, that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we know that as surely as we saw that bread broken, as we 
tasted it and ate it. We know his body really was broken. And surely, as we partake in the cup, we know that Christ's body, or his blood rather, was shed for us. The sacrament binds Christ's people to him and to each other. 1 Corinthians 10.17, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. There is a real present aspect of the sacrament with real present spiritual effects. And then lastly, 7, the sacrament also has a future aspect. In verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So there's a a, a reminder that he's coming again. The Lord's Supper looks forward to Christ's return. In Luke 22, 15, and 16, as he instituted the Lord's Supper, he said to his disciples, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's saying there will be a time when I will eat this with you again. In Revelation 19, we see that day spoken of in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And in verse 9, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the main point of the Lord's Supper is to point to Christ's atoning death. When you participate in that sacrament, you proclaim that atoning death. It was given by him to the apostles. It was given by Christ himself. Do you cherish it as a gift from Christ? Not just something that we go through the motions of doing every once in a while. But you cherish it as a real gift from Christ. Do you honor and observe it carefully? He instituted it the night of Passover when he was betrayed and and then went to his death. So recognize that it points to that fact that only his blood, only his death can cause God's wrath for your sins to pass over you. Remember that he suffered for your sins if your faith is in him. The broken bread points to his broken body. He suffered not only physically but spiritually for you. As the cup points to his shed blood, remember that he literally died, the only man since Adam's fall who didn't have to die, literally died for you, if your faith is in him. Partake of the sacrament in remembrance of him, and lay hold of the present benefits of union with Christ and with his people, and rejoice in the blessing of the world to come to which that sacrament looks forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would instill in us a solemn respect for the Lord's Supper and especially for the things to which it points. That we would be built up in our union with Christ and with his people each time we observe that sacrament. Build up our faith. Through it we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.